All of us are busy, aren't we? In fact, that's probably one of the the most common answers that you'll get if you go up to somebody on a Sunday morning or on a Saturday night and you say, hey, how's your week been? If you don't get the generic good, you'll most likely get the generic, oh man, it was busy. And all of us are busy, but as busy as we are, we have to take care in how we approach God's word. What if you walked up to the counter at In-N-Out to give your order and you found the, the cashier standing behind the register and she had one earbud in and she was texting on her phone and she was talking to a friend, a coworker next to her as you were giving her your order. Would you feel too confident that she was tracking with you? No, she would seem pretty distracted, wouldn't she? But what if after she took your order, she didn't plug it into the computer, she didn't call out how many patties need to go down on the cooktop, she did take your money and then she just kind of smiled at you and, and said, wow, that was a, you know what, that was such a good order. That was a great order. I haven't had an order like that in such a long time. That was so refreshing to hear that order. And maybe she even calls her coworkers over and says, you know what, can I tell you about the order that I just took th- today? It was an amazing order, but she's not doing anything with the order. It's kind of ridiculous, and yet I wonder how often is that the way that we approach God's word? Consider it for a moment, if you will, that the God of all creation has revealed himself most directly to you and I in in one volume. 66 books, over 1,100 chapters, 31,000 plus verses, but one volume, the God of all creation, the God who is omniscient, who knows everything, the God who has existed from eternity past, the God who is omnipotent, who is all-powerful. 66 books, one volume, his most direct revelation to us. And so if we consider that as we approach the Bible, perhaps it will allow us to approach it with a greater level of intentionality to pay attention to what God is saying since he used such an economy of words to reveal who he is, who we are, and what he did about that. Maybe when we consider that, it'll help us to approach it with a little bit more of a focus, more attention. Well, what about Saul? Saul didn't have the Bible the way that we have the Bible, but he did have God's prophet Samuel, didn't he? And there are a couple times, including in our text this morning, where Samuel went to Saul and said, Saul, I have a message for you from God. Now, if somebody comes up and says that to me today, my my skeptic radar is going off like crazy, right? Somebody has said recently, one of the pastors, if you want to hear the audible voice of God, read the Bible out loud. That's, That's how God operates in our dispensation today. But in Saul's day, if if Samuel were to come up to us, if we were living during this day and say, hey, I've got a message specifically for you from God, man, we would tune in, wouldn't we? We would pay pretty close attention. Unfortunately, though, it turns out that distracted listening isn't a, a new phenomenon. It existed during Saul's day as well, and the disastrous consequences of Saul's distracted listening are recorded for us in 1 Samuel 15 for our instruction and for our warning. We pick up in 1 Samuel chapter 15 with Samuel's return to the scene. You recall last time we were together, Saul had made the grave error of not being patient waiting for Samuel to come, and he had offered those sacrifices, those offerings on his own when he had been instructed to wait. And so Samuel came and confronted him and said, what did you do? And Saul said, well, you didn't show up, and the Philistines were camped over there, and the people were deserting, so what other choice did I have? 
And Samuel said, well, as a consequence for your impatience, your dynasty is gone. God's no, no longer going to create a, a dynasty from your lineage, but it is, it is gone. And then Samuel left. Well, now Samuel returns. And we pick up in verse 2. Samuel returns with a message. He says, thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now, go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. It's one of those uncomfortable texts, one of those uncomfortable passages. This is one of the ones that our more liberal friends perhaps point the finger at Christianity and they say, well, see, God condones genocide. Was God condoning genocide in this passage? No. God's executing his just and righteous judgment against a sinful and rebellious people in this passage. If we go back to Exodus chapter 17, verses 8 through 16, we find Amalek, the Amalekites, on the scene. And what they're doing at that time is they're attacking Israel on Israel's way out of Egypt. So they came after God's people when God's people were in a vulnerable state. And what's more, they didn't line up face to face to battle Israel. They flanked Israel and came around from the behind, from the rear guard where they were the weakest. And that's where they attacked Israel from. But what was most heinous about that is that they were trying to stand in the way of God's sovereign plan for his people. They were trying to prevent Israel from entering into the promised land. And so at that point, in that particular moment, God declared to the Amalekites, you're done. There will come a day where I will wipe you off of the face of the planet. I will blot you out of the memory. In fact, in Numbers chapter 24, you guys remember Balaam? Balaam and his donkey, and then he had Balak who was trying to get him to prophesy against Israel, but that wasn't working out too well. Part of Balaam's prophecy was that, again, Amalek, the Amalekites, were going to be completely destroyed. Deuteronomy 25, we find there, again, God rehearsing what Amalek did. Because they had opposed him as he was leading Israel out of the wilderness, God was going to blot them out from under heaven. But there was another reason why the Amalekites were going to be destroyed. It was part of God's conquest of the whole promised land and, and why he was trying to rid all of these other people groups out of the, the promised land. And why was that? He was worried that Israel's hearts would be lured astray and that they would go after the false gods, the false deities that the Amalekites worshipped. Still, we may be uncomfortable with this. We may feel like this is a little bit too harsh. Do you know how long it was between when God first said to the Amalekites, I'm done with you, and when he actually executed judgment? Over 300 years. Over 300 years of God's patience. And remember that this is the same God who sent Jonah where? To the Ninevites, right? And what did he send Jonah to the Ninevites saying? Repent, or what happened to the Amalekites, I'm paraphrasing, is going to happen to you. What do the Ninevites do? They repent. What does God do? He relents. If the Amalekites had repented and come to submission to the Lord, do you think God would have still wiped them all out? No. He's the same God as he is when he's the God of, of Jonah and the God of, of the Ninevites who repent in that context. They had 300 years to repent, but they refused. And so eventually God's patience ran out, and he comes to Saul through Samuel, and he says, Samuel, I want you to send Saul to go execute my just wrath against the Amalekites. One commentator says there's no way to lessen the horror of the moment. 
It is horrible to think of the women and the children and the infants being killed in this slaughter. The sound of the words, he says, the, the sound of the words of God to Saul that day was terrible. He says, but it must be remembered that this was the holy and righteous judgment of God, the Lord of hosts. Sometimes we read passages like this in Scripture and we recoil and we get uncomfortable and we feel like we have to reinterpret things to make it more palatable either to our senses or to the senses of somebody else that we're talking with. But that's not what we're called to do. Think about this for a moment. The wrath that God poured out through Saul on the Amalekites is the same wrath that God poured out on his son Jesus Christ for your sin and my sin. Do we recoil at that the same way we recoil at the fact that His wrath went after the women and children of the Amalekites. See, it's not our job to reinterpret the scriptures. When we come to the Bible, when we come to God's word, we're coming to place ourselves in submission to it, not it in submission to us. That's point number one this morning. When the Lord speaks, we must listen well. When the Lord speaks, listen well. Again, Samuel comes to Saul with a direct message from God and he reminds him of the authority of the one commissioning him, the one sending him. He says, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. He's setting the stage, he's saying, Saul, the one who gave you the power that you have, he has a message for you right now. The one who's more powerful than you, who's more authoritative than you, has a job for you to do. He says, now therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Again, let's consider it from our perspective today. We hold in our hands, in your, on your tablet, on your device, whatever, the, the words of the one who is the God of all creation. He's the God of all creation and he's given us 66 books and he's revealed himself to us and he's commanded us to do things, to follow him. And again, it's not our job to reinterpret that or make it more palatable for us. It's our job to pay close attention to every single thing he's commanded, to listen well. I mean, think about it this way. If you were to spend five minutes with the president of the United States, pick whichever one you like, okay? doesn't have to be the current one. But your, your favorite historical president, if you were to spend five minutes in a room with him and listen to him speak, you'd be hanging on every word that came out of his mouth, wouldn't you? You'd be writing it down. You'd be recording it on your iPhone. You'd be sitting there going, I want to remember every single thing, every single syllable, every single word that comes out of his mouth. You'd leave there. You'd tell other people about what you heard. You would rehearse the things that you heard. You would say, man, I can't believe he said this, and he said this, and he said this, and he said this. Eventually, you would go over it so many times that you would have the whole thing memorized. You can make the connection, I'm sure, but how much more should we be that way when it comes to the Word of God? To to the direct revelation of the God of all creation that we have at our fingertips. How much more should we give attention to the Word of God to hang on every syllable, to talk to other people about what we're reading? Hey, did you hear this morning's DBR? Did did you are you are you following along? This is what it was talking about. How amazing is this? Do we give our time in the word that much attention? Are we listening well when we come to the scriptures? Saul failed quite mightily in listening well. 
And we say, well, how do we know? Because we get to see how he responds to what God commanded. Verse 7 says, And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and the oxen and of the fattened calves and of the lambs and all that was good, and they wouldn't utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, though, they devoted to destruction. You know, Saul starts strong in verse 7. Okay, we're defeating the Amalekites. That's a good thing. He's going out, and from this enormous geographic region, Havilah as far as shore, Saul does this sweeping military attack, and he completely destroys, defeats the Amalekites. And so we're tracking with him. We're going, okay, this is good. But then we come to verse 8. And in verse 8, everything changes. Because in verse 8 we read, and he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, what's that next word? Alive. And devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people, verse 9, spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and of the lambs and of all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. It's recorded for us twice so that we don't miss it. The writer says Saul took Agag. He captured him. He took him captive as a hostage, as a military prisoner of war. And it says, and he spared Agag. And this is where Saul's, the insidious nature of Saul's sin comes out more than, than ever. That word spared comes from the Hebrew word to show mercy and to have compassion on. To show mercy and have compassion on. So just so we're clear, Saul chose to take a man that the Lord had condemned to die. That the Lord in his divine righteousness had said, this man is not worthy of my mercy. He's not worthy of my compassion. He needs to be put to death. He has had long enough. His time is up. Saul took that man and instead of following through with God's commands... Instead of listening well and translating that to obeying, Saul instead took it upon himself to show mercy and compassion where God had chosen not to show mercy and compassion. And he takes him captive alive. We can see it, right? That the arrogance of Saul. The audacity, the, the, the tragedy of all of this. Let's go back to in and out for a second. Say you finish your order. The cashier is smiling at you, telling you how great your order is. And you, you go back and you sit down at your table with your receipt and, and you're waiting. And you're not sure what you're going to get, but it's always worked out before. So you're just trusting something's going to happen. So you're sitting at your table, but the cashier thinks to herself, you know what? I know what he ordered, but when he put his keys on the counter, I saw that gym membership card on there. And, and you know what? A double-double is not going to be good for a guy that's trying to lose some weight. So I think I know better what he really should have done in that situation, what he, what he should have ordered. What, if he could do it again, this is how he would order. So instead of the double-double, I'm going to get him a, a single patty, no salt, no cheese. I'm going to wrap it in lettuce, stick a toothpick in it, and, and call it a, a meal for him. He'll be thankful. And so she goes ahead and goes forward and, and makes that order. Again, yeah, is it absurd? Of course it is. But how often is that again with us when it comes to our obedience to the word? And if God knew how difficult obeying him in this current situation would be, is he wouldn't really ask me to do that. 
If he knew how difficult this was going to make my life, my job, my family relationships, how awkward this was going to make things, how much I'd have to sacrifice if I obey him in this issue, how weird people would think I am. He wouldn't really ask me to give up that much. And so instead, I'll just obey what I think he would have wanted me to do if he knew what my life was really like. As we don't literally have that conversation, but sometimes we live that way in how we pick and choose what we're going to obey and what we're going to set aside in the commands of Scripture. See, God had not been unclear with Saul. Samuel didn't have a speech impediment. When he delivered God's message, it was clear. The problem was not Samuel's message, was not God's message, his clarity. The problem was Saul's failure to listen well. Because listening well involves, yes, hearing the content, but then also agreeing to do what has been commanded. Right? This is what we tell our kids all the time. Listen and obey. Not just listen and do whatever you want. Not just listen and do what you think I, I, I should have said, although sometimes that's how our kids respond. No, we want them to listen and obey completely. See, every divine word, every divine word has a divine purpose. And it's not our prerogative to alter that through partial obedience. Saul was under the impression that he had done well. Verse 13, Saul was just deluded or just really dumb. Samuel came to Saul in verse 13, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. See, obeying the Lord, it's not like horseshoes and hand grenades. Obeying the Lord's not about getting in the ballpark of the target, the general vicinity. Obeying the Lord has always been about hitting the mark completely. To miss the mark at all is still to miss the mark, however small it may be. God's standard has never been good enough. It's always been absolute perfection. And for you and I, though, we will fall short. That still has to be our aim every single minute of every single day. God, this next 60 seconds that I have in front of me, I want to hit the mark perfectly in obedience to you. When we wake up in the morning, we need to set ourselves our direction for our day towards perfect obedience, full obedience of the Lord. We have to be diligent to obey him in everything he's commanded. Point number two this morning is this. When it comes to obedience, be thorough. When it comes to obedience, be thorough. Don't cut corners. I'm reading a book about a, a World War II pilot who was telling the story about growing up learning to fly on a, a, a training glider. And his first trip out, the glider went up and then it came down and it crashed. And so they had to rebuild it. And his job was to glue the, the struts underneath the, the, the wing apparatus that was going to eventually be covered by the fabric. And he wanted to make sure that the struts stuck, so he coated them in, in a bunch of glue and stuck them on there. Well, his father came along later to inspect his work and saw that there were globs of glue that were seeping out from the edges of all these struts. And he, he said, son, this is, this is not acceptable. And 
the son replied to the, the father and said, yeah, but, but dad, nobody's going to see that. The plane's going to fly fine and the fabric's going to cover it. So it's, it's no big deal. And the father's response said, to his son was, he said, yes, son, but you will know that it's there. You will know that it's there. We don't cut corners. And so he made the, the boy go back under and sand down all of the extra glue that had seeped out. See, when we come to obey the Lord, we have to be thorough to that level. We have to be willing to, to obey completely, make it our aim to obey completely. This is the Sermon on the Mount, is it not? When Jesus says, you've heard it said that you should not commit murder. And everybody in the audience, hopefully at that point in time, is going, okay, yeah, great, I'm good, next commitment. Jesus says, not so fast. I tell you, if you hate your brother, you're guilty of the same. You've heard it said, do not commit adultery. I tell you, if you look at a woman lustfully, you're guilty of the same. Do you see this, this thorough obedience principle at work in the, in the Sermon on the Mount here? Jesus is saying, don't just look around and try to be better than the guy next to you. Try to be perfect. Make it your goal, your aim to be perfect. We can all stand next to a, a serial murderer and look pretty good. But how about when we're on the, the freeway driving and somebody cuts us off? How about when we're behind somebody who's slow in line at the grocery store? How about when we get into an argument with our spouse, an argument with our kids? When it comes to obedience, we have to be thorough. Peter said in 2 Peter 3.14, Therefore, beloved, since you're waiting for these, what are these things again? If you were with us on New Year's Eve weekend, these things are, are the, the return of Christ and the coming judgment that awaits for all of us. Since you're waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish. Be diligent to be found by Christ. Perfect is what Peter's saying. Without spot or blemish. Work at it. Labor at it. Be diligent after these things. And you may be saying, yes, but I'll never be able to hit the mark fully every time. True. But again, make it your aim nonetheless. Make it your aim every day to be perfect. What was Samuel's response to Saul? I've obeyed the commandment of the Lord. Samuel said, what then is the bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul wasn't the smartest guy, was he? I mean, the sheep and the oxen are close enough that, that Samuel can hear them. And yet he's like, hey, I obeyed everything. Samuel says, well, then why am I hearing the sound of sheep and oxen? Saul, verse 15, they have brought them from the Amalekites for the people. Notice the slight deflection here. The people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. And the rest, though, don't worry about the rest. All the ugly people, all those women and children, Samuel, we killed them. See, Samuel even tries to get Saul to, to, to come to repentance of his own here. He throws it out there and he says, Saul, you've, you've obeyed everything? Well, then why am I hearing sheep in, in oxen? But Saul, wishing to justify himself, takes his, his disobedience and he perverts it and he twists it around to try to make it into this act of worship. Hey, Samuel, we took those so that we would have something to offer to the Lord. Well, what was the Lord's evaluation? The Lord's evaluation is actually back up in verse 11. We skipped over it, but we can come back to it. 
says, I regret that I've made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. Saul's evaluation of himself, I've performed the commandment of the Lord. God's evaluation of Saul, he has not performed my commandments. You know what this tells us, guys? This tells us this. This tells us that partial, partial obedience is always complete disobedience. Partial obedience is always complete disobedience. God doesn't give partial credit. God says, I regret that I've made Saul king. This isn't God admitting to a mistake or an error, for we know that God's ways are perfect. This word regret in the Hebrew is a word that that means deep emotional sorrow, pain, and grief. That Saul's disobedience had caused God. He was emotionally pained over Saul's disobedience. But Saul has no awareness of this pain and he continues his narrative of self-justification even when Samuel directly confronts him. Samuel goes on, verse 18, the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites. Fight against them until they are consumed. Why then? Why did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And so Samuel's not pulling punches anymore. He's not asking about the sound of sheep and cows. He's saying, Saul, you screwed up. Why? Saul's defiance. I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, the sheep and the oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction. They took them to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. This isn't stubbornness. This isn't even stupidity. This is bold-faced rebellion. This is an unregenerate man who in his flesh felt no conviction or prompting to repent and to seek the mercies of God. Samuel says, your argument about offerings is worthless, Saul. Verse 22. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, to listen better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. It's been a bad two or three chapters for Saul. First, Saul, your dynasty's gone. Now, Samuel says to Saul, you're not the Lord's anointed anymore. He's going to get another one, and he's going to remove you and replace you. Don't be Saul. Okay, that's going to be a recurring theme for, for pretty much the rest of 1 Samuel. Don't be Saul. You see Saul doing something? Don't do that. When you're confronted with sin, when a brother comes alongside you, the way Samuel came to Saul and confronts you with the ways that you have transgressed God's clear word, where he shows you where you've not listened well, where you've not been thorough with obedience, don't allow your prideful flesh to keep you from godly repentance. 
You can write it down for point number three this morning this way. When confronted with sin, ditch the excuses. When confronted with sin, ditch the excuses. We all feel it. It's that defense mechanism that's part of our flesh. When we're confronted with sin, our our, our pride rises up within us, and we want to justify ourselves. We want to excuse ourselves. We want to make it look like it wasn't as bad as we know it was. Y'all, when you feel that rising up within you, fight it with everything that you have. Because the Spirit never leads us to justify sin. The Spirit will never give you an excuse for sin. What the Spirit will do is prompt you and lead you to repent. When a brother comes alongside you gently or even belligerently and confronts you with sin where there's sin in your life, be quick, be eager to repent from that sin. Back to in and out You go up to get your food, okay? And you come up to the counter and you find that box with that ugly piece of lettuce-wrapped excuse for a hamburger sitting in the box. And you know you ordered a double-double and cheese fries, and those are nowhere in sight. So what do you do? Well, you pull your receipt out of your pocket, and you call the, the, the cashier over who took your order, and you say, well, I, I don't think this is my order. I think this is, is wrong. But rather than correct her mistake, she proceeds to point out your gym membership key tag there on your chain and say, well, I know what you ordered, but I'm, I'm really looking out for you. I'm looking out for your, your good, your health, your cholesterol. I, cheese clogs those arteries up, and, and you know, if, you're, if you're hitting the gym, the treadmill, I didn't want you to waste another trip to the gym, so I got you this ugly piece of lettuce wrap cow here. I hope you enjoy it. Come back to in and out soon. That's not her right, is it? It's not her right to reinterpret your order and, and decide to do what she wants to do. We covered that. That's, that's the whole, that whole idea of partial obedience is complete disobedience. But her job, if she's made a mistake, is to do what? It's to say, I'm sorry, how can we make this right? Right? That, that's basic customer service. I'm so sorry that you're not happy with things. What can we do to make this right? Guys, that's us too. We have to listen well and obey thoroughly when it comes to God's word. But when we fail in that, when we fall out of step with God's commandments, we have to ditch the excuses and make sure that our first response is not justification or excuses, but our first response is to say, how can I make this right? What do I need to do to get right with God? And for us, that involves confession, that involves repentance, turning from our sin, and that involves obedience, right? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Well, Saul eventually sort of, kind of, no, I'm not even going to call it repentance, that cheapens the word. Saul admits that he screwed up, and he says to Samuel, Samuel, you have to come back with me. Samuel says, I'm not going back with you. Saul says, no, you have to come back with me so that the people don't think poorly of me is basically what he's arguing here. See, Saul still, even in this this quasi-perverted repentance here, he's not about making his relationship right with God. He's about making his relationship intact and right with the people. 
making sure that the Israelites still think well of him. So Samuel returns with him. And I love the ending of 1 Samuel chapter 15, and that probably tells you more than you wanted to know about me. But in verse 32, now now remember, Samuel's not a young man in this context. He's an old man. And he's part of the clergy, and, and, and we haven't changed much over the years. So he's not this hulking, massive individual. I, I, I know I, I, that's, it's deceptive, but it's true. And so Samuel says, bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. <laughs> and Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag and Saul were, were, were good buddies, I have a feeling. And Agag said, surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. And all of God's people said, amen. Samuel did what Saul should have done. Samuel manned up, took the sword, and executed God's judgment against God's condemned. Why? Because Samuel was zealous for the Lord, was zealous for God's righteousness. Samuel was zealous to listen well, to obey thoroughly to what God had commanded. And so he takes Agag and he hacks him to death there. That's what listening well looks like. Again, look at your Bibles, pick them up, hold them in your hands. One volume, 66 books, 1,100 plus chapters, 31,000 plus verses. But it's the entirety of the direct revelation that we have today from the God of all creation. Right here. What are we doing with it? Are we giving it due attention? Or are we listening with just one ear open? Are we hanging on every word of scripture Or are we fitting it into our busy schedules wherever we can kind of cram it in? Are we satisfied to just simply check off the box on the DBR? Or are we still hungering for more and more and more even after that? And is it evident in our lives? Is it producing fruit in how we live? Are we being thorough in obeying the things that we come across in the Scripture? Are you living in accordance with the word of God? Not just in the ballpark, but are you striving to conform your life perfectly to his word? Again, make that your aim today. Let's pray together. Father God, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for scripture, for the gift that it is to us. Help us to desire it more, to give it more of of the due and the the attention that it's worthy of. It's mind-boggling, Lord, to think that, that you know everything, and yet this is what you've chosen to reveal to us. How important must it be? Father, we thank you for, for, for Samuel 15, for recording for us Saul's disobedience and his failure to listen well so that we might be warned by his failure and instructed on how we should live differently. And I pray that we would live differently. Father, thinking about even the wrath that you poured out against the Amalekites, mindful that 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 same wrath would exist for us were it not for Christ. We're thankful for him. We're thankful for our salvation that we have. 
Father, I pray for these men for the time in their small groups after this that it would be profitable, that even though we've taken some time off, that they wouldn't miss a beat, that they, but that they would be able to jump right back in and, and continue to enjoy fellowship with one another and, and sharpen one another. God, make us men of God who are faithful to you, faithful to your word, for your glory in Christ's name, amen.